Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This is a fascinating story. Do you know that every time there's a major crisis, 9-11, the 2008 housing crisis, March 2020 with the pandemic, or even in 1987, when the market fell 20% in a day, every time there's a major fast crisis like that, there's one type of person and basically people who follow this one very, very specific investment strategy that make millions and millions of dollars. And this is the only time they make money. But because no one ever expects a crisis to occur, these people make much more money then they lose during quiet periods. So when nothing's happening, when nothing bad is happening, these people lose a tiny bit of money every month. But when the crisis happens, they make thousands of percent on their money. And Scott Patterson wrote a book called Chaos Kings, How Wall Street Traders Make Billions in the New Age of Crisis. He doesn't talk about all Wall Street traders. There's just a handful of people who do this. You have to be a particular type of person and it's a very particular type of strategy. But we talk about what type of person that is, what type of strategy this is, who these chaos kings are and how much money they make. They make billions in some cases and how you can apply this sort of philosophy to your own life, whether it's investing or just life. So here's Scott and I talking about the chaos kings. This isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. What do you think, Scott? If the lockdown didn't happen, would 2020 still have been probably the craziest election we've seen in our lifetimes? Yeah, probably. But I certainly think it catalyzed it, gave it a lot of fuel and energy everywhere. It wasn't just a you know, right-wing thing. I mean, you had the George Floyd protests. I'm right around the corner from the White House where all that happened here at Lafayette Square Park where they ran down those protesters and tear-gassed them. I mean, I think there's no doubt without all of the insanity that came with the pandemic, it caused the conspiracy theories, the following year with the vaccine. That really bifurcated people. You know, people I know who I thought were pretty normal went off the deep end about the vaccine. <laughs> and it 
push them into further reaches of uh, conspiracy thinking. I mean, if you remember the Canada truckers, like they, yeah, I, the guy and I was saying the truckers, like what Canada is doing to the truckers is just as bad as what Putin was doing to protesters in Russia protesting the Ukrainian war. And I thought that, you know, not that doesn't really <laughs> compare remotely. Um, I mean, there was a lot of stuff uh, with the, the pandemic and it was hard not to politicize it because for instance, I was not in favor of for an entire year or however long it was shutting down all businesses in the economy. Cause now we're experiencing what we're experiencing now, which is this weird economy where somehow things are both good and bad at the same time, but we also don't know if they're good and bad. Like it's, it's just a crazy economy right now. Like none, none of the data makes sense. And yeah. It hasn't made sense for a couple of years. And then you have to also ask the question, like, is the government really allowed to shut down every business? Because, you know, we have a right to our property. And, and but that makes me sound all of a sudden like a conspiracy theorist. Just be, just stating an opinion now makes you sound crazy, even if it's completely rational to ask if something is constitutional or not. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's so much has happened, but I, I think that uh, for a while, at least, a lot of businesses shut down voluntarily. Yeah, which which makes um, sense. Like the market should yeah. should decide. Like, and you don't want your customers to get sick. We didn't know how this thing was spreading, as you mentioned in the book Chaos Kings, which we'll talk about in in a second. You know, Nasib Taleb was looking at the R naught of how fast the virus was spreading, and that was cause for concern. Like, I stopped my kids from going to school before there was a lockdown, but you know, then three four months later, because of the George Floyd and BLM protests, were organizing quite innocently of. 20, 30,000 people, but they were still keeping mm -hmm. furniture stores closed, which typically have no customers in their store. Right. So, there were, so there was things happening that were irrational, but if you stated an, an opinion like what I just said, you were considered an outlier of some sort, either to the left or to the right. I don't even know. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of it all. It's, it's just a sort of a blur now. I know it is. Thing. But that period is where my the idea for my book was born, actually. It was born out of the chaos of 2020. Essentially, 2020, like 2008, was one of those moments where what happened should never have happened if you use just basic probabilities and statistics. Like the odds mm. of the market going down 40%, you know, depending on which market you're looking at, in a matter of days, if you use basic statistics, it would be one in a billion. But mm -hmm. as the steam Taleb has shown over and over again, and as you describe in the book Chaos Kings of all the people who benefit from such statistically impossible moves, these so-called black swan events happen more often than statistics predict, suggesting that you can't use the basic, basic, basic mathematical model of statistics to model the markets, and yet everyone does. <laughs> and not just the right. markets, but elections, incidents in your life, wh whatever bad thing could happen, that you think will never happen often happens. Yeah. <laughs> but good things too. There's there's good, there's positive black swans too. So oh well, <clears throat> give me an example of a positive black swan. Maybe the internet, something that we didn't anticipate at all, and then has come around and totally revolutionized our lives. And uh, you know, there's dark sides to the internet, obviously, but this is not something that people predicted would happen. Except, you know, if you were working at Bell Labs in, you know, the 1960s or something. Yeah. But you could say a stock like Amazon has black swan-like characteristics. It's true. How could a company that continually loses money year after year 
become one of the biggest companies in the world. So I think that in the market, the negative black swans are more common because you don't see 40% moves up very often. Right. Because of the deleveraging characteristics of crashes. But in our daily lives and with some stocks, just last week, a solar company went up 25% just on one announcement from the IRS about a tax credit. And this is what it's the biggest solar company in, in America, actually, for solar. So, and that's a lot. I mean, 25, it was like a $25 billion market cap. It's interesting, though, like this is like an evolutionary thing where loss aversion is much more powerful than greed. Fear is more powerful than greed because, yeah. you know, when you're walking in the jungle and you hear a noise, in the one in a thousand chance it could be a lion, you don't want to die. So you just immediately run. Whereas, if you were more motivated by greed, maybe, oh, this is an animal you could hunt, or maybe there's just a fruit tree rustling in the wind. But you don't, you'd much rather have, you know, take into account the one in a thousand chance and save your life than the, the more likelihood that is just nothing. Right. So, yeah. And what you do in your book is you document the really fascinating stories of the people who specifically bet on extremely low probability events and the killings they made in the pandemic and in 2008 and in 1987, not because they're glorifying like, oh yeah, we got a pandemic, let's make some money, but they mm -hmm. bet long in advance that the world was too complacent and, and relying too much on, oh, the market goes up 1% a day or down 1% a day and very rare that it goes up or down more. I mean, they were betting, these people were betting yeah. on huge significant moves that never happened. So those bets are priced very low, meaning they could make an enormous amount of money if they happen. And they always seem to happen more than we expect. Probably initially, they just looked at these instruments and said, man, that's really cheap. You know, I could buy this thing for 10 cents, you know, this derivative contract and no one else wants it. And I just keep buying that. I think that's what Nassim was doing in the 80s. And it kept paying off for him. So he, it was the market opportunity first. And then he kind of backtracked into the sort of the black swan philosophy of yeah. why it isn't happening and why do I keep making so much money on something that goes from 60 cents to $400. It's not statistically probable. And it's fascinating because people will think you're ridiculous until they don't. <laughs> Meaning, like nobody would have predicted 1987 in the stock market crash in October of that year that the market was, that the Dow Jones would fall 22% in a single day. Because that would mean, like right now, like let's say the, the Dow's at, 33,000 now. So that would mean it would have to go down to around almost 26,000 tomorrow for it to go down over 20%. And Nassim Taleb was the sort of person who was making bets that in a day, that's what's going to happen to the Dow. When that, on an average daily basis, that is just ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I wouldn't say Nassim was necessarily betting on that kind of move. But he certainly was positioned to benefit from it. I think he was betting on something a little less than that. Universe is a 20% move in a month. But I think their idea is you position yourself for this to happen. It happens more often than you think. And it's actually pretty cheap to do so. And you'll never blow up is the other part of it is, is you're not leveraged at all. Right, because you probably don't even use all your cash. You probably just use a small amount of your cash. So mm -hmm. just, to, like, just to kind of summarize to listeners, you know, I will, I will say what we're about to talk about with these black swan events 
is the exact opposite of how someone like Warren Buffett invests. Warren Buffett being the greatest investor in history, there's nothing wrong with how he invests. This is just the exact opposite. So Warren Buffett takes big bets on a handful of stocks that he thinks over the long run, over a 20-year period, no matter what happens to the market, these stocks will go up. So Coca-Cola, he's owned for over 40 years. American Express, I don't know if he still owns it, but he owned it forever. And mm -hmm. this is sort of completely the opposite. You make you make the sort these sorts of investments that lose a little bit of money every month while things are normal. And then the one month out of a hundred that things go crazy, these might make you a thousand times your money or whatever, some outsized number that's much greater than the amount that you've steadily been losing while things were normal. Right. And what they discovered and what Nassim and his partner, Mark Sticksnagels, discovered implementing this strategy was that those events, when you go down 40, 50%, are what really matter and what you really need to protect yourself against. The monthly bobbles up and down at 5%, those kind of take care of themselves. If you just manage your risk, you, you don't lever up too much, you will make money on the market. What you need to do, according to them at least, is protect that tail risk, that left side tail risk of a crash. And if you do that, you survive that and you get through it and you end up performing very well. Universe's Spitznagel's hedge fund backtesting has showed that that has actually worked really well in the past 15 years or so. And, and this is not how traditional investors think. They want to benefit on the daily grind upwards. Like a Buffett, he's, you know, there's not a lot of Buffets out there in the world. So he, he does very well at it, but they don't think about that tail risk. They sort of just set it aside. Even risk managers on Wall Street, you know, the value at risk metric that many banks use and hedge funds use calculates the 95% probability of a move uh, every day. That 5%, they're just like, nah, you know, don't worry about that. That's not including some 15 days out of the year when you could see a move bigger than what's in that calculation. And I think that in 2008, that's what a lot of these banks found out is if you're not thinking a lot about and protecting against that 5% that risk, then you could blow up and it's the end of and, and the game. <laughs> you're out of the game forever. Yeah. I'm always trying to figure out how to explain this all simply. So... Imagine when you're a student and you're being graded on the curve. The curve is a basic statistical model where most people sort of aggregate in the middle and a handful of people will get an A plus and, and another small amount of people will get an F, but most people are around a B or a C. Mm. Believe it or not, that's how most hedge funds and investors model the stock market. So what's, what you were just referring to, like how Wall Street models their risk, they're trying to figure out, hey... We own enough things that are uncorrelated with the market. And, you know, here's the odds of if such and such events happen, you know, here's what our max loss probably will be and what our minimum gain or maximum gain would probably be. But what Nassim and other really smart investors have shown is that because all of Wall Street believes that basic statistics rule the market, the bets you could make predict a huge move, either up or down, are very underpriced because no one wants those bets. They're like, oh, that's crazy. So Nassim yeah. and, the, and Mark Spitznagel and other people you mentioned, like Bill Ackman and, and others you mentioned in the book, real fascinating stories. 
they find the most underpriced bets they can make to make them super cheaply. They're probably going to lose on those bets. But again, in the long run, I mean, what's Universe's returns? This is Mark Spitznagel's fund. They've had average annual returns more than 100% since 2007. I mean, those were audited financial results from Ernst & Young. So they've had phenomenal gains. The hard part of the strategy is that you have to go through months, if not years, of losing all the time. <laughs> That's why it's, it sort of goes against basic human nature, which you know, you're saying are loss averse. You have to just accept that that's the price. And the way they like to think of it as an insurance policy. So you're paying your policy, you're fine, your house isn't going up in fire, you know, uh, and you just accept that that's a payment. But when the fire comes, you're protected. And not protecting yourself is as if you're, you know, you're living in a flood zone and, you're, and you have no insurance and you're just acting like everything's fine and you'll, you'll never get flooded out. You know, and it's, it's not just human nature, it's, it's Wall Street nature also because in 2006, I had the opportunity, I, I met with John Paulson's hedge fund, which famously made billions betting against the housing market. They, they were betting mm -hmm. on the black swan happening, which did happen in 2008, as Nassim benefited as well. They laid out the whole thing, and I remember thinking they're they're right. The world is just doomed right now. Like I don't. And their main concern was, will banks survive long enough to pay them the money they right. owe? Which was a common theme. But I couldn't invest with them. They told me on average they're going to lose one percent a month. I couldn't expose my investors to that. I was running a fund of hedge right. funds, and that was too big uh. of a loss for me to take every month if I wanted to keep raising money. Yeah. But they were correct. I wish I had invested them. Now, of course, afterwards, everyone tells me they're invested in them, but I don't believe <laughs> that. Yeah. No, I remember talking to funded funds back then that were some that were invested in Paulson and were very excited about it. And that, that was a perfect example. Nobody thought that could happen. The U.S. housing market does not decline as a whole. Never happened before, although it did actually in the Great Depression. And that's, you know, that's been Universe's experience is that big investors are really reluctant to give them money because to them, it looks like a line item, like this huge cost every every quarter, every year. Uh, it's a loss of, you know, depending on how big their position is, 10, 20 million dollars. And, you know, for a fund manager, that's terrible because it hurts your performance and you're being judged on your annual performance. That's where your bonus comes from. Your investors start losing faith in you. So as, as successful as their strategy has been, they still have had trouble raising money from institutions like, you know, pension funds. Um, as I recount in the book, they did get a major investment from CalPERS starting around 2016, 2017, the big California pension fund, biggest pension fund in America. The CalPERS was very excited about it, but then there was a management change. They looked at those line item losses and said, this is terrible. We got to get out of this thing. It's way too expensive. And they cut their position in January, 2020, <laughs> just completely liquidated it. So, and they, you know, the, I mean, the calculations are they could have saved their pensioners billions of dollars, two, $3 billion. Although on Buffett's side of things, if you're a long-term holder, then you don't really care that much about market movements. You're just going to assume that eventually the markets will go back to all-time highs, stocks will return to their glory. So you might miss out on some gains that you could have made short-term, but 
in the long run, you kind of have a faith in, in, okay, biotech's going up in the long run. So I'm going to throw it around to a bunch of biotech stocks and eventually some will succeed and some will fail and I'll be good. You know, and, and you do that in every industry. Well, I, I'd say, I mean, Berkshire Hathaway, which I used to cover for the journal, it's a, it's a unique company in many ways. And, and what people forget is he has a gigantic insurance uh, operation that is constantly, no matter what's going on, is constantly churning out cash. And that gives Buffett this uh, you know, dry powder that he uses when markets collapse, like he did in 2008 with Goldman Sachs and, and others. Um, yeah. He's and sitting there with this pile of cash that he can deploy and buy stocks when they're at their cheapest. And that's that not, you know, not many companies have that structure. That's really the engine that drives Berkshire Hathaways and insurance cash. And a couple of points. One is insurance company is almost the opposite of a black swan sort of investing because an insurance company is using basic statistics to model the fact that Scott Patterson is a man in his 40s or 50s, I don't know, who uh, uh, has never had a car accident before. And he's married with two and a half kids and mm. lives in such and such place. So they use basic statistics and they determine, oh yeah, we're going to charge Scott 600 a month for his car insurance and we'll pay out 2 million if he gets into an accident. But you could be a black swan. You could go crazy one day and just drive into a mall and kill a bunch of people. And your insurance is <laughs> like, you know, goes through the roof. So insurance companies in general... Yeah, they, the, large, the law of large numbers is it works for insurance companies yeah. by and large. That's how they make their money. Interestingly, I mean, the thing I, I do get in the book is with this, you know, one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that things are getting a little bit more crazy for a lot of different reasons. You know, technology, global connectivity is rising. That's something that we, you know, saw uh, in the pandemic and climate change. And, and climate change particularly is raising havoc within insurance companies because those models are not effective anymore in predicting things like flooding, storms, fires, all all that stuff is becoming very difficult and systemic. You know, there's they're seeing climate change as becoming a systemic risk. And a systemic risk is almost by definition impossible to price. So the biggest insurance companies in the world are trying to figure out how can we price these things which are not in the in the historical record anymore? The hurricanes are worse. And there's just no way to predict it. The past of the storms change, storms are accelerating because of the heating of the oceans. They're trying to use AI to model the risk, but things are sometimes changing so fast that even that can't keep up with it. So that's just an area where insurance is getting hard. <laughs> And yeah, they're, they're coming up with innovative models to try to deal with it, but it's very tricky. You you mentioned AI just briefly, but AI is almost all based on statistics. So it's hard to kind of overcome a bias towards statistics when you're using AI because AI itself is based on statistical modeling usually. Yeah, it's backwards looking. Yeah. But they, they're trying to make it so it learns very quickly or can make predictions that are outside of the law of large numbers. But that's hard stuff. I mean, it's very tricky. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life 
so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. In your book, you kind of mentioned, and this is a very important thing. The big question everybody had after Nassim Taleb wrote The Black Swan is that, in general, you can't really predict the unexpected. You can't predict Mm -hmm. a one in a billion event Else, if it was that really that predictable, it wouldn't be a one in a billion event. You couldn't say, well, it's about, well, now we're due for a volcano. No one's yes. been able to predict that. 
because it's not it doesn't follow you know actually to get into the nitty-gritty it follows sort of a power law distribution of statistics rather than a bell curve which is the, the student's grading model but mm-hmm. without getting into the weeds there it's hard to predict but then you mentioned something called the dragon kings which are more like black swans that can be predicted describe those people and what they do and how well they're doing and so on it's a breed of mathematics known as complexity theory but it, it you know brings in economics physics very high order mathematics the lead practitioner of it that I profile in the book is a French, he, he calls him an econophysicist, Didier Sornet. He set up shop in, in Zurich in the mid-2000s to create a financial observatory laboratory where he collects data on hundreds and hundreds of financial instruments and attempts to predict these Dragon King-like events. And it, he, he kind of made up Dragon King to compete with the Black Swan with Taleb's black swan. So it's his own sort of crazy animal, exotic and king-like. The king effect is another mathematical sort of black swan um, because kings in the countries that they ruled, their wealth far outperforms everybody else in the uh, country. So Didier, he got his start in the 1990s monitoring the physics behind the blowups of these rockets, these French rockets. And he developed a mathematical formula using the power laws that you mentioned to detect the early signs of such a blowup. He eventually, he started dabbling in stocks and detected similar patterns that you could see in in a blowup of a rocket. What sort of patterns? Like, what was he noticing? Very rapid oscillations up and down in the parameters that he's monitoring. Uh, so with stocks, you would start to see big movements within the market. Maybe the market itself isn't moving as rapidly, but within it, these interior signals indicating some extreme event is on the horizon. So like, for instance, when people were first worried about the pandemic, let's say in February 2020, a lot of people heard about it for the first time. The stock market was still sort of normal. It was going to all-time highs then. But then you mm-hmm. started to see weird things like some stocks would have wild oscillations up and down, but the market wasn't affected as a whole, just like oil crashed to zero or even negative. Like, but it was, and it was only after like a bunch of these things were happening that everybody said, uh oh, and then the bottom fell out. Yeah. Yeah. In March of 2020. And, and that would be the kind of thing that he, you know, he, he would be looking for is the early indications. So, you know, he's been refining this model over the years and he'll make predictions and then he'll come out and, you know, about a commodity or a country's index like China. Uh, He's had some successes where he's made very accurate predictions and there does seem to be some utility in it. The problem is making very specific predictions of these events is so hard uh, getting the timing right that it's still, in my mind, not a proven methodology for risk management. I'd say it's a useful tool for betting on the market. It may be something that you could use to buy, you know, buy some options. You see a signal and you say, okay, something crazy could happen and you buy some options and it could pay off. But the job of risk managers on Wall Street is not 
gambling. <laughs> it's managing risk and protecting your clients' portfolios. And I think that as of now, these techniques, they're not equipped to do that because it's just, it is market timing. It's a, it's a form of market timing. And if you try to market time protecting portfolios of, of billions of dollars, you're going to miss some things. And, and that's Nassim's argument and Mark Snagel's argument is you can't time these things. It's impossible. You will get wiped out. So you need to constantly have that protection on the books. So again, the, the difference between Nassim's approach of a black swan versus the Dragon King approach of DDR Sarnet is that Nassim every month is finding the cheapest ways to bet that an extreme event will happen. So, and then when those expire, yeah. when those bets expire, like he might make a bet, oh, in a month, the Dow is going to fall, you know, 10%, which is an extreme. And he found some cheap ways to make that, that bet. And so he just keeps doing that regardless of what's in the headlines. Whereas Garnett yeah. is trying to model it so he can more accurately predict when a black swan will occur. And he calls those dragon kings. So he might see yeah. there's more mentions of a pandemic in the news and stocks are behaving weirdly. So boom, let's do this. Just like Bill Ackman, you mentioned, was um, yeah. doing the same thing with in January of 2020. You know, he started to notice, oh, if this Wuhan thing gets worldwide, we're in, we're in trouble. And so he basically bet on bad things happening. So he was more like a Dragon King guy. I'd say, yeah, exactly. And I'd say it's more like speculation, you know, than risk management. You're weighing the odds of something, and you're you're making a bet. Universa. Nassim and Spitznagel are not making bets, at least not on any short-term horizon. They're making a long-term bet that these things happen frequently, more frequently than people realize. And to protect against that downside, it's worthwhile constantly maintaining that portfolio. So it's a it's a day-to-day -day thing. Like the, these traders are day-to-day -day buying these far out of the money put options, is, is what they're called, to protect the portfolio. They expire, they get new ones. And it's just a, it's a routine. I imagine it's got to be pretty boring. <laughs> like, you know, doing that day after day, then the excitement comes, you get a couple of weeks and you pop like a billion dollars. But, you know, I've, I've, saw, I've asked them about that. How does, you know, it's got to be tough, you know, because traders are paid bonuses based on the profits they made. These traders could go years without any profit at all. And that's, you know, that's, that's hard. Do you think, do you think do. it affects their personality? Because like, take Nassim Taleb. He, he, and by the way, he's been on this podcast. He's a good guy. You know, his books are great. I actually wrote about his books. I have a chapter just about his books in my latest book, but you see him get into all these like really crazy Twitter arguments, you know, mm -hmm. where he just like, he just like goes crazy on these arguments. And, you know, does it make him like overly negative? Cause he's constantly betting on worst case scenarios every month, day after day, like you say, he's betting that he's not hoping for the worst case scenarios, but he's betting on them. And he's done this no. for like 30 years. Do you think it like changes your personality or do you think you have to have the personality for that to begin with? Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I do get into that a little bit in the book uh, where I, I recount this uh, Twitter feud that he had with uh, Cliff Asmus at AQR yeah. uh, over AQR is, is very skeptical of tail risk strategies. Um, and that played a role in CalPERS deciding to get out um, of, of Universa. Um, no, I think it's, you know, it's it's a character trait of Nassim that his that kind of bothers 
his friends the most, that he's out there publicly attacking people, using all sorts of names, calling and, you know, calling people charlatans and even worse. Um, he's a very and, pleasant, uh, soft-spoken guy in person. Yeah, he's very nice, very much a gentleman in person, fun to have a drink with. Um, but then you'll see him, you know, just completely go after, and it doesn't, he doesn't care who it is. He'll go after Nobel laureates and, with the same viciousness. Um, I, you know, I, it's hard to say where it comes from. It, it's, uh, I think part of his character was, was born on the trading floors you know, of Wall Street in the 80s, in 90s, when just, you know, you were expected to be like that. And he, he respects that kind of, you know, no bullshit kind of attitude. Um, and I also, I think it's probably why he was able to, to do what he did, which was basically, you know, call bullshit on a large, uh, part of wall street and say that, you know, the, none of these people should be making any money and they should go out of business, um, because they're, uh, they, they don't know how to manage money. And when they blow up, they, you know, they take their multimillion dollar paydays and, and walk away with it because they didn't have his, you know, he says skin of the game. Um, yeah. so, you know, I, I wouldn't do what he does. I know Smart Spitznagel makes it makes him uncomfortable. He doesn't even go on Twitter, uh, you know. So he, you know, but he also knows that's just Nassim. That's who he is, and you know, you learn to live with it. You know, it's also a weird thing in that, like, take an event like nine eleven. So obviously, they didn't know they were betting that nine eleven would happen—a terrorist attack on the U.S. But of course, since they were always betting that the market is gonna there's a small, tiny, one in a billion chance that the market is going to have this massive crash and they know that it's actually, the odds are wrong. It's it's going to happen more than one in a billion times. They were in the markets for 9-11, so they made a lot of money that day. And I know some hedge funds even, like there was a fund, Viking, I think it was Viking Global, they actually were, gave their profits to charity after 9-11 because they were betting on a market fall, but because it was that event, they gave the profits yeah. back from that day. And yeah, um, tricky. Well, Empirica, uh, that, that was the original hedge fund that, that Nassim and Mark launched in 99. They did not make money on 9-11. And the reason is their investors didn't want them to monetize their positions. They, I see. they were afraid. If, if you recall, I was in New York at the time. Everybody was afraid there, you know, there's going to be another attack. And th this is just the beginning that, you know, uh, who, who knew was, was going to happen. And you have to act quickly with these positions because they expire quickly. So they held on to them thinking that another shoe could fall and they, they'd never made money on it. That I, I, I talk about that in the book. And as Mark told me, yeah, we were learning our lesson that you have to really know how to position yourself around these things. And, it, and it is sort of the dark side of the strategy is you're making money when other people are in misery, you know, yeah. and they don't like that side of it. But at the same time, they see it as protecting their clients and these hard times who are pension funds or other investors who have real people relying on that money. And they see it as being a benefit. And they're happy if other firms do the same thing. They don't personally think that most trading firms can't do it very effectively. I, I don't know. It, it is, I, I think that 
you know, what I tried to do was just, you know, look at this as a trading strategy and also expand it beyond just the market as a lesson that we can learn in these chaotic times about thinking about risks that we find we're, we're facing. Because it is a, it's a, it's a common human trait to think that tomorrow is going to be just like yesterday, and we really don't have to think about these uh, these these negative, extremely negative um, consequences. Right. But we really should try to do that and prepare. And climate is one of the areas where I'm you know, I'm most focused on. It's what I at the Wall Street Journal I cover climate and technology is being developed for it. So it's it's sort of top of mind for me. But you know. When I first started thinking about this book, the pandemic had just broken out. And it was shocking to see how poorly America managed that. And we clearly hadn't prepared for it. What do you think we should have done? I think that we should have been better prepared. We were very low on the ventilators, obviously. We didn't have a lot of the you know, the masks. That's one of the reasons why the health officials early on caution people not to wear masks because they were worried there'd be a shortage and, and the hospitals wouldn't have access to them. I think that uh, if, as Nassim recommended, and as I recount in, in the book, he was cautioning extreme precaution in January of 2020. And if uh, he and, and he wasn't alone, you know, and they, they sent their one-page uh, note to the White House at the request of the White House, I think if there had been an earlier response in the U.S. and if we had been better prepared, so that's something that needed, the, the groundwork for that needed to be laid years before, we would have done better and we wouldn't have stopped it. You know, the, the, it, was a, it was a very contagious disease, but maybe we wouldn't have the most deaths in, in the world. And, and that, was, that was one of the things that I was just astounded by in 2020 was how is it that America, the wealthiest, most technologically advanced country is also experiencing the, the most deaths. There's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, we got caught up in all sorts of conspiracy theories. People continued as it spread, and we've seen this in areas where these conspiracy theories were most widely uh, believed in. More people died in those areas. They wouldn't wear masks. I know. I don't know why, but the mask thing has become political. And you know, you, you see various studies. To me, it seems to make perfect sense. Wearing masks not only protects you from airborne particles, but it keeps the particles from going out of your own mouth and nose. I think widespread masking early on probably would have helped. Not an expert in epidemiology, so uh, I'm, I'm not the right person to ask. But just looking back on it, I, I, I just remember the thing that, you know, I think the, the initial uh, spark for this book was... When I saw in March of 2020, when the entire financial world was in complete meltdown, Universa produces a gain of more than 3,000%. At the same time, Nassim Taleb kind of using a similar approach to extreme events. In January of 2020, co-authors a paper identifying the extreme nature of coronavirus and warning that we really needed to take precautions against this thing because if we don't, it's so contagious that it pre it presents an extreme risk to the human race. So these two completely different areas by these two guys who had looked at the world in a very similar way, they came out looking pretty good. Like, you know, universe it, the world blows up, they make a billion dollars. 
or more. They actually made a couple billion dollars. I mean, there were expert epidemiologists in March of 2020 saying, hold on now, we don't really know. You know, we need to wait and study this thing. And, and that's the problem that he and others identified was when something that dangerous is coming, you can't really wait around to figure out what the minute properties of it are. You need to act very quickly. As, as they say, panic early. You got to, you know, if something is posing a systemic risk, you need to react as soon as possible. And the same thing with investing is you need to invest before, like Bill Ackman, he panicked, he totally panicked. And that allowed him to buy the instruments before anybody else did. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise, dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. 
Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. In the case of Nassim, do you think because he's he's built this muscle over the decades to look for things that you know, he, he notices the initial rumblings of something that could be exponentially grow exponentially more devastating. Yeah. Like a volcano, there might be pressure built up inside of a volcano. There's no way to predict if, it, if it'll erupt, but you know, the pressure's there, but you're relaxed because it might not, you know, it's, it, it, the odds are against it blowing up today. And yet Nassim would probably stay away from the, the volcano. Uh, yeah. Just in case, but could you get too risk averse? Uh, I yeah, there's that's uh, always a risk. I mean, I think that's why experts are always worth consulting. And and Nassim didn't write this paper alone. He a co-author on the book was Junir Baryam, um, who's the founder of the New England Complexity Institute. He had been an expert in studying uh, the properties of pandemics for decades. He worked with the WHO in Africa uh, during the Ebola crisis. He was somebody who had real, you know, world experience managing and examining pandemics. And Nassim had been studying his writings over the years. They they uh, were partners on other papers. Um, but it is, I think, Nassim's uh, an understanding of, of exponential risk that really allowed him to see how quickly it could spread. And he, he's written about this before, saying that, you know, we live in an age of connectivity. We have more connectivity than ever with airplanes flying all, all over the world. Baryam had written a paper about this in the late 2000s, I think, and then another one in the mid-2000s called The Transition to Extinction, uh, which is a scary title, <laughs> um, where he, he uh, is arguing that uh, previous pathogens were so deadly that they, you know, they could break out in a village, but it wouldn't really spread that much because it kills everybody so quickly. But with this age of connectivity where people travel to cities, they ride in buses and cars together, they get on planes, we're hitting this point where those deadly pathogens are no longer contained like they used to be. They can spread. And we're reaching a point where if we don't manage a risk of this, we're facing something pretty dire. And, you know, COVID-19 was a, a test of the world's ability to manage something like that. It proved to be not as deadly Millions of people died, and and that's you know it's horrific what happened, and and I think that it, I don't know it feels sort of like we've forgotten about it. Like I don't, it doesn't I don't get the sense that it really was. It, it should have been a wake up call. It feels like it wasn't um, for many people. We just kind of want to move on. Yeah, I I agree. It feels like like you said in the beginning of the podcast. It's almost like a big blur. Like when I think of events that happened in 2019, it feels like they happened last year. Almost as if I completely like yeah. whacked out the three years in between. But you know, it it seems like if you're thinking in that manner, there's lots of potential. I think this is why people are always predicting in the news this is a black swan event, even though you can't have that many black swan events just by definition. But you know, mm -hmm. there, there's there's all sorts of existential risk to humanity. Like there's there's biotech, which if you could clone some virus and spread it around, you know, potentially, you know, and these are theories about coronavirus, like conspiracy theories about coronavirus, potentially you could wipe out the world in a lab. 
There's, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's talking about AI now in this very conspiratorial way. That's just ridiculous to me, but, but who knows? Uh, there's for, for decades, there's always been the threat of nuclear war. Oh, now, but now if a terrorist group gets nuclear materials, that's a black swan thing that could happen. So it's almost like there's too many black swan possibilities now. How do you invest it all for, for a positive world? Yeah, well, that's, uh, <laughs> I mean, that that's what, you know, one of the things I'm trying to argue. And, you know, people will debate that and say things have always been crazy. But there just seems to be some measurable technical developments in the world that are magnifying risks and they interact. Some people call that the poly crisis. Um, some economists and, and others say that this is a new crisis are getting bigger in all these different regimes and arenas and they're interacting and uh, causing something even bigger than some of the parts in terms of risk. It's one of the things that I agree that you could just become completely paranoid and become a prepper and, you know, go out to Idaho and, and set up shop in a bunker. And people do that, yeah. you know, uh, people are doing that. But I think that that's not very helpful. And I think that it's better to try to think about the risks ahead of time, not get over paranoid. And that's one of the things that Nassim talks about with this paper that he wrote with Baryam and, and a few others. Uh, Rupert Reed is, is another person he wrote this paper with called The Precautionary Principle. That is an attempt to, in a way, ca- uh, quantify systemic risk and characterize it in a way that, you know, he say, here are the things that we really need to worry about and be very precautious about. And the other stuff is out there but it's not systemic. It doesn't have these various characteristics that uh, you need to look for for something to, so that you apply the precautionary principle. That this precautionary principle has been around for decades. It's very, it's it's fairly well known in Europe um, where it's encoded in in law in some of the countries and international law. And what it prescribes that when a risk is so extreme that it presents a threat to humanity, the people engaging in that activity to prove mathematically or through other means that that risk actually doesn't exist. With COVID, it's an interesting example because there's a very, there's a very big mm-hmm. danger to this, which is which is like what happened in, in COVID, either correctly or incorrectly, which is everybody was told you have to stay in your house and shut down your business. So normally, if that happened in a normal year, people would say, are you crazy? I got to make a living. And you can't tell me to just, it's not like every home is a jail. This country is America it's, or, or Europe or wherever. It's a free, free world. But at the same time, the math was there too that, I mean, the New York Times was predicting over 100 million deaths would happen worldwide, which is, you know, the other extreme. So you could go either way in terms of the math. Yeah. I think that, you know, with COVID in the beginning, because of the, the are nots that were, people were saying that, you know, how many people a single person could infect. It was in three to four range. That was, you know, putting it in the highest level of contagious disease ever seen. And that's one of the things that shrieked out and seem and others is if it's so contagious, you really, it, it's going to spread exponentially. It, I think, I'm not sure what it settled on in the R-naught. I mean, it was two. Yeah, two or two, two and a half. 
So it wasn't quite as contagious. And that might have been because of the precautions. You know, I think that if people did just continue to, to go on as life as usual, it would have been a lot worse. I think what people were hoping was that this, you know, it just kept on going. I think that the hope was a lockdown of, you know, and it wasn't like, I don't, I don't recall as being, except for in some states, the government mandated lockdown. It was people doing it on their own. They, they you know, I know that's what I did. I saw this thing spreading and just stopped coming into the office. So a lot of people just started doing that and some people couldn't. And, you know, like the meatpacking uh, companies and those people got really sick. So in places that didn't impose these restrictions, you saw a lot of spread. A lot of people died in, you know, very low income uh, companies and industries. You know, I mean, it's obviously hard, but the problem, I think the problem was it was very haphazardly applied. And a lot of people didn't take those precautions. I think the idea was you just, you kind of, you break the chains and it stops spreading. And it proved, it proved, it proved to be very hard to contain. I mean, you know, China, case in point, they tried to do that, impose these. And this was two years into the pandemic, forcing people to stay locked up in their houses, which is not something I, you know, or I don't, you know, Nassim would advocate. And it, it didn't work. Because it's, you know, there's too many people moving around and it continues to spread and you also crash your economy. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's hard stuff. It's hard stuff, I, you know. But I, from what I remember back then, and the idea was a very short lockdown period that keeps it from spreading. But that just, that didn't work and a lot of people didn't, didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea would be since the virus lives for two weeks after it gets to someone, you know, two weeks, give or take, the idea would be, hey, if we all just stay inside for two weeks, the whole virus is gone around the world. And yeah, but that never really happened. I mean, it was just a few weeks ago, they declared the virus emergency over. It's like three years later. <laughs> so I know, I know. And, and, you know, and again, I'm not being critical of any, it was like you said, some epidemiologists said, oh no, don't worry. I mean, and they're smart people. Just, just like in the housing crisis in 2008, there were very smart people saying, this is going to be fine. This is all going to work out fine. Like there were hedge funds and who study these things all day long because they don't want to lose people's money and they want to make money. And they were investing in housing stocks and bonds and insurance companies and so on. While, while other people were saying, no, 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 it's everything's going to crash and burn. So it's like equally intelligent people on opposite sides of the coin. I'm just wondering what, what makes the difference between these these people because they're they're like equal in every other respect on paper and yet one sees the catastrophe and the other doesn't maybe the ones who see the catastrophe the reason they're still around is because they see catastrophes everywhere but they've learned how to manage the risk of seeing those catastrophes as opposed to just flaming out on the first bad prediction yeah i mean i i think that uh you know the way that nasim and march the snake would look at it is if you're relying on predicting the catastrophe, you're going to blow up. You, just, mm. you can't, you can't do it consistently. And you know, look at John Paulson. I mean, he made a great bet, but then he, he made terrible investments in the years following that yeah. uh, in gold and, and some other things. I mean, as you, as you know, managing risk on wall street is, is very difficult. And uh, I think that they have developed a pretty effective model for getting through these things. And one of the key parts of the universe's strategy is that no one would give all their money to universes. 
you know, that would be a crazy thing to do. What they recommend is you put in a tiny percent of your portfolio, say 3%, and the rest you put in stocks and, you know, the S&P 500. And so you get to benefit from the upside in the many years that the market goes up. And then when you get a crash, you've got that tail risk protected and you get a, a nice you know, infusion of cash when everybody else is cash poor. But this is not a speculative strategy. It's a formula for investing and getting through these uh, extreme periods. Right. And I think that that insurance is really what's the important part of it. It's a good way to think about it, insurance. And just to get a little bit more into the weeds, they're buying a kind of option most people aren't even aware of. People know about, and, and this is too mm-hmm. much into the weeds, but people know about calls. They're not really as aware of puts, which is uh, sort of the option equivalent of short selling. And because of that, puts tend to be not priced accurately because they're not as liquid a market. And particularly like, again, because people have model things using basic statistics, the one in a billion type of puts are priced very cheap. So it's a form of arbitrage. Yeah. So so in the seams model, the prices of these things are too cheap compared to what his model shows they should be because the risks are actually higher than people think. And so if they were if they were priced accurately, he wouldn't make any money on them. But they're priced right. inaccurately and he's discovered that. So he's he's able to make this bet every month. And then in the long run, sooner or later, he's going to make way more money than he's lost because of the inaccurate pricing. It's a form of arbitrage. And he's done very well with it. Now, Didier Sinet, what are the dragon kings that are on the horizon that he's watching out for right now? He is, he's sort of got this long-term prediction that society is heading towards collapse. <laughs> so uh, he would recommend buying a lot of puts. Uh, he, he's dating that in the next coming decades, but it's it's something that's been born out of some complexity theory. Uh, Joseph Tainter is one of the original thinkers that, that uh, have made similar predictions and Didier has built his predictions on that. And which is the fundamental idea of it is that we're getting too complicated. Society is getting too complicated for a variety of reasons. And we can't manage that complexity anymore. Things are running out of control and AI would be one of them uh, that, you know, energy crisis, climate crisis. And because of that, we're going to run into um, systemic issues like food insecurity, water crises, war, things that combine to create a, a collapse. I mean, I, I feel though, like like stuff like food insecurity or food shortages that's been predicted ever since 1830. You know, with, Malthusian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's 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 hard to to not. There's a fine line between being a crackpot and taking something seriously. On the flip side, though, I mean, if you go back, let's say 60 years to the 60s, you know, Gordon Moore, the or at the time he was the CEO of Intel, he was he said famously, Moore's Law, that computers were going to double in power every 18 months, roughly what he said. It's an ex- exponentially growing industry. And there weren't really other exponentially growing industries. But now because computers have grown exponentially, he was he was correct, that's created the exponential growth of many other industries that use computers to model themselves. So like biotech yeah, that's or a good point. AI or robotics or automated driving or whatever. So it could be the same thing maybe on the risk side that maybe as Nassim says with the connectivity of everything, plus again, computer power, you know, growing exponentially, maybe that exponentially increases the number of black swan events that will occur. Like between 1987 
and 2008 was like 20 years, but now we're starting to have more craziness all the time, it seems. Yeah, I think it seems like things are getting a little wobbly. <laughs> but I, I don't want to be pessimistic about it. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of potential positive. We talked about positive black swans. I'm, as I said, in, the, in this climate space and looking very closely at the technologies that are being developed by all sorts of brilliant people, and it's, ex it's exploding. I mean, it's literally exploding in terms of the money coming into it, you know, the sharpest minds of the universities are going into these technologies now, and the potential for, you know, very cheap energy that's going to be available around the world in the coming decades is, is you know, very hard to get your mind around what that could do because, you know, if, if we get off of the volatility of, of fossil fuels, which will devastate some countries that are, you know, petrostates, the benefits that we could get from widespread, very cheap energy that can be put anywhere, you know, on a Pacific Island or in Sub-Saharan Africa is, is really remarkable. And I think it has potential for transforming society, but there's a lot of things in, in the way, of, you know, standing in the way of that happening, political, mostly entrenched interests, very rich uh, industries that uh, are benefiting from the status quo. But that's one thing that I, you know, the, the climate debate, can be extremely depressing, depending on who you listen to. But there's a lot of really fascinating things going on, to, and, and society is mobilizing in all sorts of ways to to try to make this happen. Uh, finances, you know, that's I come in it from the financial perspective. Talk to people in charge of billions of dollars that think this is the this is the big thing for them. You know, even big oil companies are getting into it. Oh yeah, they see the, the money in it. And they want to protect their downside, you know, so like Exxon works on yeah. getting energy out of, you know, seaweed and algae. Like they're doing all sorts of, you know, things that normally they wouldn't care about. So, they're getting into uh, uh, carbon capture. Yeah. In a big way. I mean, that's a... It's not really very well known, but it's, it's happening. Carbon capture, by the way, is a huge, huge business opportunity for the simple reason that everyone's going to be required to be involved in it at some point without really fully explaining what it is right now. But, but the other thing is too, you always make money when something's mispriced. And because the government mm -hmm. basically sets the prices on these carbon credits, it's permanently mispriced because it's the government. It's not letting the market <laughs> do it. It's just the government doesn't really know. It's like, that's, that's like the old Soviet union putting the, making the price of eggs, you know, a ruble. They don't really know what the market says the price is. They're just setting a price. And so it's always wrong. Yeah. And, and so it's in a very interesting industry right now for that, sure. for that reason. But mm -hmm. um, I, I have to say your book was very inspirational to me, Chaos Kings, just because, you know, you, you, you don't just explain like what this is. You, you really describe the backgrounds and personalities and stories of the people making major amounts of money in this area. And, and you really go into detail in their trading philosophies. One could read this book and, and potentially emulate these trading philosophies. It reminded me in a weird way, it's a completely different style of book, but it reminded me of the book written, I think it was around 1999, Market Wizards by Jack Schwager. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I've talked to Jack before. Yeah, because and, and the reason I say that is after I read that book, I wanted to be a day trader. And <laughs> after reading your book, I want to invest in like black swan strategies and come up with my own, you know, formulas and so on. So it like got me thinking and, and it was inspirational that way, but it's useful to know for any investor out there or anybody just interested in, in risk in your own life. Uh, it's just an invaluable book to see, 
what the theories are, how it's related to chaos theory. You know, it's really benefited the people who subscribe to these types of philosophies. And I just highly encourage people to read it. Uh, chaos Kings, how Wall Street traders make billions in the new age of crisis. Good subtitle. Usually I hate subtitles. And it's by, by Scott Patterson. I've had so many subtitles, I forgot which we landed on. But yeah, it's... Yeah, and and Scott Patterson, you also wrote uh, about high-speed traders. Well, you, you wrote the book Dark Pools, which got everybody terrified of all this like secret high high frequency trading that's happening that's going to bring down the markets. I remember having those discussions when your first <laughs> book came out and or, or that book. I don't know if that was your first, but uh, no, yeah. Yeah, the Quants was my first one. Oh, um, yeah, I remember yeah. that one too. You talked, uh, this guy I played... Used to play poker with uh, from and he yeah, was a lot Stanley, of Stanley Peter guys. Peter Muller yeah Peter Muller yeah yeah very good Scrabble player also and he was he, he was yeah, all that. and it, does the high speed trading still happen like is that still an issue oh yeah oh yeah it's um it, it's I I haven't really delved into it in detail recently but it's it's bigger than ever it dominates uh it's going to continue to dominate it's spread around the world at this point I, when I wrote that book it was really the U.S. and uh, some in Europe, but it's now it's just this global connected grid of traders using lasers and you know, the fastest computers you can imagine. I would think it's like a race to the bottom. Like ultimately, you can't go fast enough. Like like these people were jacking right into the exchange and, like you say, using yeah. very sophisticated technology. There's only so close you can get to the exchange before you're all jamming into each other. Maybe it's yeah. spread around because you have to find new markets that aren't sophisticated to do this. You know, I knew PhDs whose sole job was to shave off like two microseconds from a latency in a trading machine. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it was crazy stuff. Scott Patterson, thank you so much. It's such interesting stuff. I really am a, a fan and I, I, I've read your books. This book is great. And I'm always interested in the work of Nassim Taleb uh, and... Finally, I got a chance in through your book to I didn't really know his biography, his his story all the way back and you know how he initially made his first money and and so on, like in, in the crash in 1987. He was basically his father was basically born out of crisis in some way. And <laughs> right. it's so so interesting. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, James. This is great. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.